Welcome to Interplay. This is your host, Michael Shapiro, with a special guest today, James Robinson, stage director, administrator, theater man extraordinaire. Very good to see you, James. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. Real pleasure. Now, folks know James Robinson in New York, at least, where I live, as the stage director, wonderful stage director, who before the trouble started, produced the most wonderful and directed a wonderful uh, board game best at the Metropolitan Opera. But people also know that he's been a stage director all over the world, literally from Australia to Canada, from Ireland with friends of mine, we'll talk about that, uh, back to the States, and so many uh, bringing along, I should say, of my sister and brethren, as it were, in in composition and in the libretto field, and uh, doing a a good number of premieres at the Opera Theater of St. Louis, where you're artistic uh, director, and uh, also in so many other places. But what people don't know, and you told me recently, was that you studied composition and that you're a composer. Former composer. Once never. You know what? You never form a composer. Okay. How does does that that, uh, inject itself into what you do? Well, you know, I I think when I was studying composition, uh, my principal teacher was Dominic Argento. And Dominic, uh, you know, obviously wrote some extraordinary operas and a lot of, you know, wonderful vocal music. So I, I was attracted to the the voice and and musical styles that uh, that had more in common with um, uh, theater than than say purely um, symphonic forms or or other musical forms. Um, and I had studied theater and some design along the way, but I was focusing on on composition. Um, and I find, I mean, to, to fast forward to when I started working uh, as a director in opera, I found that it, it was just so much more useful to be able to understand the structure of music, to understand how scenes were put together from a musical standpoint. Um, you know, being able to communicate with singers, not just on a theatrical level, but also on a musical level uh, was really helpful. And then my my career started to evolve a bit and I was working with a lot of composers and librettists. So it was uh, incredibly valuable to be able to to work with composers and and to, you know, get into their heads to figure out what they were doing. And I could see it on the page. I could hear it. And uh, I don't know, it just, it, it seemed like a natural fit. So I'm, I'm grateful that I have that background in, in composition. Well, it certainly can inform what you do because your direction's musical, at least for this, <laughs> this watcher and listener. But you have various roles now. Mm-hmm. You are a stage director in great demand throughout the world, at the top stages in, in the world. But you're also an administrator in the sense of being the artistic advisor to Opera Theater of St. Louis, which is a festival uh, uh, theater, in a sense, during these wonderful summer festivals. Mm-hmm. Have you found that the stage direction and your musical background informs your, let's quote, say, administrative role and, and the other direction as well? 
Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, as artistic director at Opera Theater of St. Louis, one of the big initiatives that I introduced when I came on board in 2009 um, was to make sure that that we were, you know, enjoying a steady diet of new and newer works. The company wow. has always had a tradition of that. Yeah. Um, over the years, but I really felt that we needed to kick it up a, a few notches. Uh, so part of the, this initiative that I introduced called New Works Bold Voices mm -hmm. um, takes on a lot of new works, but also gives composers a second chance to look at something that maybe they had wanted to fix or a piece that, that had been neglected uh, and needed a, a second viewing. Um, so, and obviously we do standard rep and, and various other things at, uh, at Opera Theater, but uh, I think, you know, the work as, as a director also informs the work as an artistic director and, and the same way, you know, back and forth. Also, I, you know, I really believe in, in putting together consortiums of companies um, to, to co-produce and, and co-commission. So having an administrative position like that definitely helps, you know. No question uh, about it. It also gets the composer and librettist out there doing it when they're smelling the paint in a lot of different places with all kinds of different people. Oh, you know? absolutely. Absolutely. It, it, one doesn't understand this until you, you're in it. Um, and when you're in it, you recognize, oh, my God, I'm walking into a theater and there are about 20-odd, 30-odd people working on what I created wherever I was, you know, in yeah. a room. Oh, yeah. But I want to talk about process. You yeah. started out as a, you started out, you're a composer. You could, it's kind of like being, a, you know, born a certain way. You can never change it. It, it is what it is. <laughs> and you're taken there. But how, what was the step for you to become an actual director? Because that's missing in, in my note, knowledge of you. Well, um, where was that step? It, it, it's interesting. I didn't have much experience with opera apart from working with Dominic. Um, you know, I was hanging out with him when he was preparing for a couple of premieres because I was his assistant at the University of Minnesota. Right, um, right. And then my my other composition teacher um, was Shulamit Ron, and Shulamit uh, had never really done anything in opera, so. Um, Although she's she's done a couple of things, I believe. Anyway, so I was meant to be working on my master's thesis, and some friends in Santa Fe, New Mexico, invited me to house sit for them because they had a piano, and I thought, great, I'll have a uh, three months uh, to huh. work on my master's thesis, which was meant to be a, a short opera based on one of the tales from the Decameron, which happens to be my favorite book. Um. And I needed a summer job, uh, so I wrote a letter to the Santa Fe Opera and said, hey, you know, I'm in town, and, and I got a phone call, and they said, what, what do you do, and what are you looking for? You know, we don't need any composers, and right. you know, what, do you, what else can you do? And I said, well, I, I, I don't know. And they said, would you like to become an usher? And I said, sure. And... Uh, I said, you know, you get to see the operas and, you know, it's not that hard. So I, um, I got a job at the Santa Fe Opera as an usher. I think this was in 87, 88. I was in my early 20s. 
And um, I was always assigned to the same place, which was a pasador um, to backstage or the South Bar. And that's where everybody used to hang out during the shows, meeting mm-hmm. the production personnel and yeah. all that. And I, I just got to talking to people and, and um, they were all very, uh, very, very kind. And, um, and then one, um, one evening as the summer was coming to a conclusion, uh, um, you know, John Crosby, the founder of the Santa Fe Opera was a formidable character. And we were, we were always advised never to say anything to Mr. Crosby. Yeah. Uh, but I said, Hey, Mr. Crosby, I'm having a great time. This is a wonderful place. And, uh, you know, thanks for, you know, the experience of just allowing me to work here. Cause I was genuinely overwhelmed by the place. Uh, and then about five seconds later, um, I was approached by that, uh, the artistic administrator and the house manager, everybody. <laughs> what did you say to Mr. Crosby? <laughs> and I said, nothing. And they were like, well, he wants you to come back next season. We just have to figure out something for you to do. So I had a, a meeting with them and they, they said, well, why don't you, uh, what, what are you interested in? Are you interested in the musical side of things or the production side of things? And I said, I'm really interested in the production side of things, if that's possible. So they said, sure. Um, so I spent uh, a summer as a, a production assistant um, following year. And back in the day, those were, uh, the role was, you know, being an assistant director and an assistant stage manager. It was really brutal work. Um, and then, you know, at the end of the season in Santa Fe, they do the, this apprentice showcase, these scenes, excerpts from operas. And uh, a director who was meant to do um, a scene uh, had to leave. And Richard Gaddis, who was, uh, you know, the founder of Opera Theater St. Louis and, and worked at Santa Fe for many years, said, well, you seem to be interested in directing. Why don't you take on one of these scenes and let's see what happens. Uh, very nice. And uh, I'd never directed anything. And based on that, they invited me to come back and direct more scenes. And, and before I knew it, it's, that's what I was doing. I was directing. Um, wow. And I abandoned my music studies um, because this felt more, uh, more like what I wanted to do. And then I, I was advised, I, I felt wildly unqualified to be a director. Um, and, uh, and at first I thought maybe I should go to graduate school to learn how to do this, but I was advised by so many people who said, well, you're already doing it. Why don't you just continue doing it? Work. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. It's really right. I'll never forget yeah. my early days at the Zurich opera when I went through countless, all the major, the Ponte and Schikaneder. And then yep. Verdi and Wagner and Strauss and you know you're as a co-repetitor, a repetitory coach, you're there pounding and pounding and pounding. No better way to learn. Oh, absolutely. I want to talk to you about process because okay. as a, as an opera composer, symphonic composer, I find it very interesting just talking shop. Mm-hmm. When you approach a brand new piece, I'm not talking a piece by a living composers or and librettists who are around to maybe talk to you and figure things out, and you can mold them and they can mold you and you can go back mm-hmm. and forth, which is a wonderful repartee. But let's say there was a Ber- Berlioz opera, mm-hmm. Benvenuto Cellini, I'm thinking of okay. anything coming to my head. And let's say you had never done it before. I'm not saying you haven't, but let's say that one you had never done before. What's your process? You get the, the the piano vocal score, the orchestral score, and you can read it because you're a composer. So, and you you can listen, and you can listen to Colin Davis or whatever. But you can certainly start thinking. 
So mm-hmm. what's your process from ground zero? Because you've got to deal with lighting people and sets mm-hmm. and costumes and the right cast and that theater versus that theater. And what's your process? Can you talk about that briefly? Sure. It probably sounds a little unorthodox uh, or a little backwards, but the first thing that I do is get a recording of something. So say it's, um, say it's, you know, a Berlioz piece or uh, I don't know, a Mozart opera, Verity opera, whatever it happens to be. I get a recording of it and I just listen to the recording several times. I don't look at the libretto. I don't do much research on it. I just listen to it. Right. And part of that is to determine, in my mind at least, what what the drama is all about, where the, where these musical gestures seem to be um, shifting, and and where you know the structure of the piece uh, is based on you know the overall arc of the opera. Right. So I listen to it, and I become very familiar with it that way, and then I read the libretto. And then I get a score. Sometimes I just go straight to full score because I like to look at orchestrations too. Important. Um, Yeah. And then I um, start putting the two together. Um, And uh, I I like to then um, study full score and listen to various orchestra uh, recordings of things. Mm-hmm. So once I feel like I've got that type of thing going on, I always think, okay, what are the most important events in the in the piece? Mm-hmm. And I do a lot of research, you know, the usual thing, and um, and then I get together with designers. My, um, you know, I have a, a wonderful group of people I work with, and we start talking about it. Um, and throw ideas out there and very quickly things start to formulate, percolate uh, until we come up with, you know, kind of a basic uh, premise or concept. Uh-huh. Um, and then, you know, I, I, like I said, I work with terrific designers. So I, I let them go off and think about it for a while. And then we all get back together and see where, where things are. Right. Um, and then that's pretty much how we, 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 we set the stage for, for the next step. Uh, and then in rehearsal, um, I like to work very quickly. I like to set up a room, a rehearsal room, where everybody feels comfortable to, um, to create. I, like, I think being vulnerable is very, very important. Oh, yeah. Uh, so that people don't feel like, uh, you know, opera singers are, are magnificent creatures, right? Um, the tricky thing about it is, um, unlike actors, and I also do theater and, and musicals and stuff like that. Um, you do? Yeah. Um, but the, the, the thing that's different with a singer is a singer is coming into a rehearsal fully prepared, most of the time, fully prepared, knowing the role and, and all that. And, um, you know, when you're working with actors frequently, people have just sort of glanced at the script. They're not memorized, they're not off book. Uh, singers tend to be off book immediately. Um, and there is this feeling that you, you know, you have to know everything. But I like to set up an environment where people are still free to explore things. Um, and, you know, singers have a lot on, a lot on their shoulders too. I mean, everybody's going to compare 
a certain singer with whatever recorded legacy happens mm-hmm. to be out there. Correct. And, you know, the, and it's kind of a study in, in trying to be uh, as perfect as possible all the time. And I liked for things to be, uh, I like to work very quickly. I like broad strokes. I don't, I don't do, I don't start with details. But I, what I do is I say, okay, here's the objective in this scene. Yes. So let's just figure out how we're going to deal with that. And again, moving very quickly, having quick conversations. I work closely with conductors. Um, I'm always curious about uh, things that are in the music. You know, it's like, okay, why is there a fermata there? Or why is, uh, why is that? measure empty or why did we have a sudden key change here uh and then with the singers i'm big on punctuation i'm like well wait why let's that's a comma it's not a semicolon that why is the word repeated what does the word ah mean (laughs) you know so it's clarity clarity and it's those types of things so i i like to bash through the piece very quickly and then go back and and then keep working on it and make, I really try to make everybody feel comfortable like we're all working towards um, a common goal. And I and I believe, you know, everybody can have a, a valid contribution to this. Um, you know, I, I love it when conductors have opinions about the drama uh, and, you know, some conductors don't have many opinions about the drama, but I always love it when a composer will say, or a conductor will say, um, you know, what are we gonna do about that um, that weird modulation? We're going from, you know, C minor to, um, uh, you know, E flat minor suddenly. What, what are we gonna do with, and it's like, good idea, or why is there a fermata? What is, what is that? And, and I, I find that type of collaboration very important because, you know, ultimately we are dealing with a musical art form, particularly an opera. But so. it's a drama. So let's talk about pace, pacing yeah. and, t- and tempo. Yeah. If you were, if you were directing Othello mm-hmm. of William Shakespeare at, at the Globe, which I hope you can soon, and then the same year do Othello with Dudamel at the Paris Opera, Gott sei Dank, okay? Your pacing is going to be completely different, obviously, yes. because words spoken by in Shakespearean language is different than Boito Verdian declamation. Let's Absolutely. face it. But let's talk about getting that across, because I think if an opera composer and librettist don't understand this, they should go back to writing chamber music. They really need to know about and how to get it across. And there have been so few composers and librettists in history that have done this correctly. Yeah, yeah. So talk to me about pacing and process, the process of pacing in your direction. Well, I think one thing that's important is, so again, the difference between a play and an opera is an opera, the, the pacing, the music, the rhythm is basically baked into the, the thing, right? You, you deal with certain tempi, you deal with certain things that, that are pretty, pretty much established, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There's some, there's flexibility in that, obviously. Right. 
Um, when you're working on spoken theater, you're finding the pacing in a very different way. You're finding the rhythm. You're creating uh, the creating the music. Yes. You have to create. And in in opera, it's it, in many ways it's been predetermined. It's been laid out in a way, and you just have to make sense out of it. In a play, you're the one who's responsible for. Okay, let's figure out what the pace of the scene is. And sometimes, if I'm doing spoken theater, I'll mm -hmm. I, I will make references to say musical forms. You know, um, good, good. And and even if sing, even if the actors are not particularly, uh, I don't want to say I'll, I'll say sensitive to to that type of music. At least I have a they understand. It's like, you know, I'll say, you know, maybe that we, this, the, the pace of this scene is like a fandango. Mm. Um, and we talk about what that is. And then it's like, oh, okay. So when you're working with opera, you're dealing with something that is, is pretty well set and laid out. The trick is in opera, I think the hardest thing is transitions. So it's transitioning from one piece of music within an opera to another how do you get to those moments that's an interesting how comment because you know you think i think of don carlos for example which goes all over the place yeah and, and it's four or five hour form yeah you know uh well you have that kind of spanish music yeah you know and then you have the the do the, du the duos and you know it, it, and king philip and inquisitions and all kinds of stuff so you're transitioning between scenes when sometimes it's not necessarily like Bergian interlude music it's boom you know you're going right into it if they can get the set around quick enough right you know and, and even internally you know there are there are shifts within scenes and you have to figure how do you get from uh how do you get from an aria into a cabaletta how do you how do you pace a scene like it's um, a good example like uh, Lucia di Lammermoor? How mm. do you pace like the whole Renava, which is a long scene and there's a lot of stuff going on in there? Yep. And that's that's one of the things that that you have to figure out. Another example is uh, Handel operas. Oh. I love I love doing Handel operas, but they are. I mean, I hate saying they're not for the faint of heart, but they're they're hard because, um, you know, you're dealing with the ABA form, the da capo aria form. Correct. A lot of the time. And it's a choice is the, you know, you've got your A section. Does that express one thought, one emotion, one action, whatever it is? And you've got the B section. Then if you have an ornamented da capo, mm. How do you, it's really like, how do you justify the ornamentations and the embellishments? But James, it's also the, the expectation of that audience in London in the 1700s versus the expectations of a St. Louis audience or a Met audience or a Wexford audience or wherever you are. It's going to be so different. They don't know those conventions. Absolutely. And, and the other thing is, you know, we, we view opera, even though I, I will say, you know, it is primarily a musical art form. Uh, we view it with modern day expectations of drama. And film. And, and <laughs> film. And yeah. film. And you know, totally. And, you know, uh, Handel operas of the 18th century was like, who's who's the next greatest uh, castrato out there singing something? And they want right. to hear the vocal fireworks. And we all know that 
you know, there were certain conventions that were followed. There were, you know, uh, it, it, the idea of drama was not at all what it is these days. So when you're create when you're doing something like Julius Caesar or Radamisto or right. something like that, you know, you 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 try to figure out what the drama is there. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and and you know, I want to talk to you about something I first encountered. I went to hear uh, Walter Felsenstein, mm-hmm. the Komische Oper leader speak when I was a kid. I went, went with the composer Ellie Siegmeister, of all people, mm-hmm. out to Long Island, out to Stony Brook, to hear the great Felsenstein speak. And he spoke in German, but I got the gist of it, which was basically he was talking about musical theater, but also, in his mind, the primacy of the word and the drama. Mm-hmm. And one issue I've had all my life, having gr- grown up on Broadway, is dealing with singers who cannot enunciate. Ooh. and. Can- yeah. And to me, without getting every word as clear as a bell across, unless the opera prevents the singer from doing it, some do, but if, without getting those words across in the context of the drama, it, to me, it's, it's lost. And as we have the surtitles to help people, but I, you must spend so much time, I would think, in trying to get those words across the lights, no? Oh, absolutely. I mean, um, you know, it's funny. Well, at Opera Theatre of St. Louis, we perform everything in English. Right. We uh, commission translations of things. We have uh, wonderful diction specialist, uh, Erie Mills, um, working with our our casts. And and that is very, very important. You know, get it. And and the thing that always happens is I I find that singers – um, American singers are, are often so much more prepared in languages that they don't speak. Interesting. They spend a lot of time like nailing their Italian diction. Is that an open or closed O? Is that, you know, uh, you know, um, a, a double consonant and, and all this. Same thing with German, French, whatever. Right. English, people can get a little lazy. And in it's really you you have to work extra hard uh, sometimes getting people to speak their to sing their own native language. This is fascinating. I want we have very little time left. So I want to go to two subjects if I can rush in, please. please. Size of house and outdoors and amplification. I know this summer the the Opera Theater of St. Louis is going to be outdoors for obvious reasons Mm -hmm. where we are in this getting out of this hopefully soon enough. Uh, uh, but I've seen your productions in large and smaller houses, and there is a major difference. I went to La Scala fairly recently before this started and saw a Bohème for, for the first time in La Scala. And it was an eye-opener because mm-hmm. I had seen Bohème many times in various places, but I had never seen it in a in what is, although it's a massive house, a still pretty intimate place. Yeah. And that's true of the Italian theaters. Mm-hmm. Um, the Met's huge. And mm-hmm. with Porgy, which was designed for the Alvin Theater, then suddenly it's on this huge stage with great chore- new choreography, great direction, wonderful singers, great orchestra. But the challenges for you have to be in t- in, 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 huge when you're doing that kind of stage 
versus an outdoor theater. Just quickly talk about those two issues, if you may. And I have one last question after this. Okay. Yeah, large venues are challenging because um, I, I think you you go for stronger, broader um, gestures. It's really right. how you use the space. And I'm a big believer in blocking a show. I believe that you Good. blocking th that fundamental thing, which isn't really talked about very much in, you know, I like using space. I'm I'm a big fan of of watching dancers work. I do want to mention that your blocking for Porky was extraordinary. It was clear oh. as a bell, and I was like mid orchestra, and just watching it was visually wonderful. And then well, when you, you when you were Porky and with Bess and various sides of the stage and centered into them with the lighting and everything else, it was primo. I really enjoyed that. Oh, well, thank you. And and part of it in a large theater is you want to keep that focus because it's yes. huge. And, and Porgy and Beth, you know, that was 95 people on stage. Yeah. Uh, and you really have to figure out how to do that. Now, at Opera Theater St. Louis, we have a, a theater that's under 1,000 seats and it's a three-quarter thrust stage. So you have audience on three sides and everybody super close. Bravo. So that presents its own challenges because, you know, operas generally thought of as a proscenium based um, art form. Um, but I love the proscenium or the, the, the thrust stage because the audience is so close and you, it's a very different dynamic. That's great. I had, I had an experience with them uh, a couple of years ago. We did Mark Blitzstein's Regina, which ah. sadly neglected piece, I think. Sadly, and, neg neglected composer. Yeah, totally. totally. And um, it was very interesting because uh, Susan Graham was in it, Susanna Phillips, James Wonderful. Morris. Great beautiful, story. beautiful group of people. And um, and they really had to get used to having the audience up close and personal. So I love working in small theaters, but you 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 do it. It's a different it's a different type of, of presentation. Yeah. And that's what's uh, a, a bit of a challenge. Yeah. Do you think that the uh, the drama, though, gets gets out clearer to people in that kind of Guthrie stage a little bit? Probably. Yeah. Probably. It does. And, and, and also cast members realize that they're being scrutinized in a very different way. There's nothing to hide behind. All right. You know, every, everything shows. Good. <laughs> no, and that's fantastic. And there are, you know, Good. things you can kind of get away with on a large stage. That... Yeah, I know. But, you know, for us who are who are seeing the characters from the inside when we're writing this music, to have it come back at us in that kind of setting is, to me, breathtaking. Yeah. I, I want to talk about Opera Theater of St. Louis and also you in particular, mm -hmm. because you do, you have a major role in bringing out new work. Mm -hmm. And I think, especially coming out of COVID, um, and the fact that audiences want to hear, want to see, are dying for new stuff. They really mm -hmm. are. Mm -hmm. New production of Traviata, wonderful. But new production of some new opera that's maybe got something in it. You know, you have people like Verdi, who is all about justicia, justicia, yeah. you know, about justice. So yeah. it, it inflects everything he did. Or Berg, the inside of the, the, the person, you know, yeah. where they are in society. So many examples. Ben Britton, another example mm -hmm. of, of, you know, a, a thought, a social thought. So coming out of that, uh, you do have, of course, your program. I know you're in New Works, Bold Voices, 
which you have developed over the years. And this year you've got Stephen Mackey's piece, Laura Cartman, Damien Sneed's short works, mm-hmm. 20-minute operas. But what is your, again, process in developing a new work? Are you actively involved as a dramaturg as well? Mm-hmm. Describe that quickly. Yeah, I mean, I I love working with composers and librettists, and I'm also really excited when um, when as part of our New Works Bold Voices series, we bring in people who maybe don't have any experience with opera. Um, Terrence Blanchard, for example, fantastic jazz and film composer. Right. Spike um, Lee movies. Spike Lee movies. Yeah. Uh, dear, wonderful man. Yeah great composer, and he'd never written an opera. And I thought, wouldn't this be fascinating to have Terrence Blanchard write an opera? And he came up with an idea. So I helped him develop that. I worked with the libretto, Michael Christopher, and I wanted to see what would happen and to give them some guidance. Same thing, uh, the wonderful playwright Rajiv Joseph adapted um, uh, the Salman Rushdie novel, Shal- uh, Shalimar the Clown for us with Jack Perla. And Rajiv had never done anything like this before. So I like to see what, and, and Terrence's second opera based on Charles Blow's Fire, Shut Up in My Bones, uh, a filmmaker, Casey Lemons, uh, did the libretto for that, which again was very complicated. So I like to see what people do. And I also say, look, uh, and having knowledge of um, musical theater and uh, operas, I can say, okay, your scene is set up a bit like uh, the party scene in Traviata or uh, this this particular trio in this Donizetti opera. Take a look, don't copy it, but they, it's you're dealing with the same set of issues. So what, how can that inspire you? Um, you know, or you say, you know, kiss me, Kate, this is just like kiss me, Kate. So that's why right. don't we figure out how that works? That's right. So it's, that's part of the process and also just helping illuminate certain things. And also, uh, I think sometimes people who haven't created opera before are a little timid about it. And I would say, let's, let's just go bold and we can always pull back. Well, you just said some words which I want to use to conclude our very wonderful talk and too short always. We would like to see what you do. So James Robinson, stage director, musician, lover of great things in the theater. Thank you so much for being on Interplay. My great pleasure. Thank you. I'm Michael Shapiro, your host on Interplay Conversations and Music with this extraordinary talk with James Robinson today. Thank you for joining us.